Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Y'all are on it this morning. It's impressive. Hey, if, um, if we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, my name is Paul, and I uh, have the privilege of serving as the teaching pastor here at LifePoint Church. Um, if you're a guest this morning, man, just welcome. We're so thankful uh, that you've chosen uh, to join us. Well, hey, this Palm Sunday, which is a special Sunday, uh, we're continuing on in a series that we've been in for several weeks called The Ascent. All right, called The Ascent. And in this series, what we've been doing is looking at several different passages throughout the Scripture, these mountaintop moments where really God has worked in really incredible ways. All the way in week one, we were at Mount Moriah when God tested Abraham and, and asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. And what we see is that, that God provided a substitute sacrifice for Isaac. And God's really purpose in that was, was, I think, to obviously to test Abraham in that moment, but ultimately it was to show, show us what faith really looks like. And so throughout all generations of believers, what we've seen is that Abraham is an example of faith, but God provided for Abraham along the way. The main idea of this series, I think we see it in that story, is really that God's purpose for you is established in his provision for you. Right? Abraham provided the ram, excuse me, God provided the ram for Abraham, and in doing so, God established Abraham as an example of faith, as I said, for all generations. So again, we're looking at these mountaintop moments that really tell the epic story of God. And this Sunday, we're going to be looking at the Mount of Temptation. Right? And these last uh, two Sundays, as we lead into Easter, looking at these mountaintop moments that really center on who Jesus is. Is. And so if you have your Bible with you, that's fantastic. If you don't, uh, we'll have the text on the screens for you as well. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, all right? Matthew chapter 4, uh, as we really look at, at temptation. And, and sometimes, at least for me, it's helpful to have structure. Uh, I like to know where I'm going. And so what we're going to do this morning is really look at the why, the how, and the what of temptation. So Matthew chapter 4. Before we begin uh, studying and reading, what I'd, I'd like to do is, is pray for us, um, that, that God would really work in our midst this morning uh, before we get into the text. And so let's, let's do that. Let's, let's pray together. Father, so grateful to have the opportunity to gather as the church, the body of Christ, to worship. Father, as we gather and as we open your word, would you open it to us? Would you make it to us what it promises to be, living and active? Father, would you get me out of the way? Would you help me teach what you say clearly so that we would know you, so that we would love you, so that we would worship you? Father, send your spirit. Do what only you can do. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1. The text says this. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, a basic Bible study practice is that anytime you see then or therefore or because of this, it's helpful to go back a little bit and see what was the then referring to. And so in this particular instance, all you have to do is look up a couple of verses. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we see what is being referred to here and what we're after. So 16 and 17 of chapter 3 say this. He says, And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom 
I am well pleased. And so in this moment, you have this incredible unity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and Jesus is baptized, and what just a glorious scene. And you might think, if we hadn't already read verse 1 of chapter 4, the next thing we might expect to read is what? And there was an awesome party. Right? Maybe it's just me, but that's what I would think. This is a, a monumental moment in the history of everything. But instead of, and and then there was an awesome party, it was, remember what verse 1 said in chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Are you serious? To my small brain, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But I think in this verse, there's there's a couple of really important theological points that I want to make sure we see. Number one, I think we have to see is that the temptation of Jesus was really the will of God. Right? Jesus' temptation was the will of God, and we know that from the text because the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. God the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus has satisfied God. God loves Jesus. God knows Jesus. And then what? The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So God knew about this. God was planning for it. And God sends him into the wilderness to be tempted. And here's, here's what I think is helpful about that. Is that. If God was with Jesus in his temptation, what that means is that God is also with us in the midst of our temptation. Right? It, it means that we're not alone. It means that when we go through difficult circumstances and when we're bombarded with the enemy's tactics to derail us and to destroy us, we need to remember that God is with us. He's right there beside us. And as I say that, I want to be really, really clear that God is not the source of temptation. The devil is the source of temptation. I want to be clear. There's a real clear distinction there. And that might seem blurry, but the scriptures are abundantly clear that God tempts no one. The scriptures are abundantly clear that God is not involved in the active temptation of you. Yes, God may allow that. God knows you're going through it. God is with you in the midst of it. But Satan is a source of temptation, not God. You see, God's desire for you is to flee sin and worship him. Satan's desire for you is to worship sin that will lead to death. Those are two diametrically opposed goals. All right? So I think we, we see those two really important points just within this first verse. But, but as I was reading and studying this this week, I was thinking, why? <laughs> Maybe I'm just like a three-year-old, you know? They ask why about everything, but... But, but why not the big party? Why send Jesus into temptation in this moment? I think it's a valid question, and, and I, I want to always encourage us. Look, the Bible brings up really hard questions and really hard things, and I never want us to shy away from asking the very question that, that God's Word brings up. And as we ask that difficult question, I feel like I say this all the time, what we must do is go into God's Word to answer the very question God's Word brings up, Right? And so as you're studying and you're reading on your own, ask the hard question. It's okay. God's big enough, but go into the Word to answer it. And so the question I want to bring to us is, why? Remember, we're going to get to the why, how, and what of temptation. Well, here is the why. Why must Jesus go and be tempted by the devil? To answer that question, I want to direct us to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 2, chapter 4, the book of Hebrews is just a, a wonderful Book, but, but I want us to see this as we ask again this question, why must Jesus be tempted? Verses 17 and 18 
of chapter 2 say this. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to make those who are being, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jump to chapter 4, verse 15. It sort of synthesizes this thought. The author says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And here's the important point. Yet he is without sin. So why was Jesus tempted? Jesus was tempted so that he could become a faithful high priest before God. Now, if you have read through the Old Testament, usually when you do your Bible in a year plan, has anybody ever done those? Wow. This year, guys, Bible in a year plan. Okay? I was going to make a point, but it'll make no sense to anyone. I was going to say, usually you get a little bit in, then you hit Leviticus, and you're like, what do I do with this? But nobody's read that, apparently. So, just kidding. I know you've read Leviticus, and there's a lot of notes in there, so this will be familiar. So in Leviticus, right, it goes through these, these laws of, of the priests and, and how people are to relate to God. God is dwelling in their midst in the tabernacle, and, and God is holy, and people are sinful, all of us. Um, we've, we're all messed up. And so in order to, to relate to God, there's a specific sort of practice in, in these, these things that the high priest must do, including the sacrificing of animals, all right? And so on, on one particular day, there's an, you can go through all the details, Leviticus scholars, you know, you, you know this stuff. So they would sacrifice a certain animal, ram, and that sacrifice would be made to, for the cleansing of the people, for the atonement or the payment of the sins of the people. And then that high priest, he would have, a, have to go through a process where he cleanses himself, and then he enters into what's called the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. This happens once a year. It's a really, really big deal. But the high priest, he would essentially represent the people. Okay, And because the high priest went through all these things, the people and God could relate to one another. And so what's being said here is that when our high priest, who is Jesus, by the way, when our high priest enters into the presence of God where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling, praise God, he can empathize with us. He knows what we're walking through. He knows what we're going through. Isn't that fascinating that the second thing I want us to see here is that Jesus had to be tempted so he could sympathize with our weakness. He had to be tempted so that he could sympathize with our weakness. And this was another one of those things when I was reading and studying this week and prepping. I'm like, why? I mean, Jesus is God. Why does he need to sympathize with our weakness? And here's what I would say is that, is that relatability is foundational to relationship. Relatability is a key in a foundation to relationship. I'll give you an example. This past week, last week, as we were just sprinting to try and get this place at least presentable, um, there was a, a contractor working here, and, and I've talked with him since and told him this story. And uh, he was walking around. He was making some comments about certain things, and he was asking, hey, what does this church even believe in? And then he made a couple of comments about just how we do things and how maybe we shouldn't do them that way. And I got real self-conscious and a little offended Maybe I shouldn't have, but I, just, I was sensitive, I was tired, okay? And so I spent the rest of the day trying to avoid that guy. Maybe that was wrong, but it's, it's what I did. I was offended. I was frustrated, and I was tired, and I said, I, I don't really want to deal with you. And I knew he was coming back the next day, and I was like, great. <laughs> so, so the next day, he comes in, he's doing his thing, he's working, whatever, and, 
And I tried to avoid him again. Just wrong. Sorry. And, and all of a sudden, he starts asking me some more questions. So I answer our questions. And then we start talking a little bit. And I'm like, wait a minute. This guy's not so bad, maybe. And then all of a sudden, he starts to open up and share his story. And he talked about hardship after hardship after hardship. And then he told me how he came to Jesus. And how Jesus saved him. And how he was a sinner who has received the unmerited, incredible grace of God through faith in Jesus. And all of a sudden, I'm like, we're the same. (laughs) Because I, too, am a sinner who has received the unmerited grace of God. And all of a sudden, that relatability between one another, it established a relationship. And by the end of that day, we were literally working on a project together that had nothing to do with his scope of work. Relatability is key and foundational to relationship. And so now, knowing that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, how wonderful is Jesus? When when Satan throws something out our way, Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus knows what it's like to feel passion. He knows what it's like to feel. And the key difference, though, with Jesus then from us is Jesus He dealt with all of that. He experienced all of that. But he remained sinless through it. And so when we're faced with moments of temptation, what we do is instead of saying, nobody gets me, nobody understands me, this is why I do that, we say, no, my Savior dealt with the same stuff, and he was sinless, and I can live in the victory of his perfection. He relates with us. That's astounding, church. God of the universe, through whom all things were created, knows what you're walking through, knows what I'm walking through, and doesn't shun you or shame you. He says, I see you. Now flee from sin and put to death what I died to put to death within you. Jesus, he had to be tempted. The third point, why was Jesus tempted, is this. He was tempted so he could secure our victory by being the sinless sacrifice. Remember back in point one, we talked about he could be our faithful high priest. Well, the high priest, he would sacrifice something else. Then he would be cleansed. Well, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, was he not? Because Jesus was the sinless lamb of God, he could be made as the ultimate ultimate sacrifice for God once and for all, the ultimate sacrifice. And so when Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, God found Jesus to be an acceptable sacrifice because he was without blemish. And so now when Jesus walks into the presence of God in glory, through faith, all of our sins are gone because Jesus took the penalty and the punishment for them. And because he endured the very same, te- same temptations, of, as I've already said about 17 times, and remained sinless, that's why he can become the blemishless, faultless lamb of God. See, if he never experienced temptation, how could he be faultless? Right? So I think that's the Why? I'm sure there's much more that you could, could go into. So that, that's why Jesus needed to be tempted. And that should just elevate our view of Jesus. Anytime we get a bigger view of Jesus, that's a good thing. But, but now I, I want to get into sort of the, the how. Remember the why, how, what of temptation. So how does the enemy, how does the devil, how does Satan go about tempting us? And to, to see that, I want to I go through verses 2 through 11 here in Matthew chapter 4. Because that was really just verse 1, maybe a little excessive. 2 through 11 of Matthew chapter 4. The text says this. We're just going to read the whole thing so we get the whole context. It says this. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Understatement of the century. Verse 3. 
And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So how does Satan go about tempting Jesus? And therefore, by extension, how does Satan go about tempting us? I think the first thing we see here is that Satan attacks identity. Satan absolutely attacks our identity. To go in the first two temptations, he does it directly. If you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread because you're hungry, aren't you? Yeah. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Right? And here's why I think Satan attacks identity. Because Jesus said repeatedly, I came to do the will of my Father in the Father alone. And so Jesus knew that it was the Father's will for him not to eat. Jesus knew it was the Father's will to make him wait to have certain things happen. And so suddenly, if, Jesus, if, if, if Satan can get Jesus to... to reject somehow or question somehow his identity, therefore he can get him to question and reject the authority of God in the will of the Father in his life. Do you see that? I'm going to undercut identity so I can challenge your view of God. But praise God, Jesus remained faithful. And church, Satan will do the same thing to us. He will attack our identity, and if he can confuse our identity... He can dismantle our view of God. Right? If, if Satan can confuse or, or distort our view of self, by extension, we'll, we'll see God in a whole different way. At LifePoint, we, we have core values, and, and our, one of our primary core values, and I want to be clear here, our, our view of self should be directed and dictated by God. Right? These, these two things sort of work simultaneously together. But what I want to see here is that one of our core values is called gospel identity. Gospel identity... What we say about that is that we are undeniably flawed. We are undeniably sinful. We are undeniably broken and away from the Lord. And yet, while we are undeniably flawed and deserving of the wrath of God, which we are, we are also unbelievably loved. And we see that incredible love through the cross. Right? That, That God, yet while we were still sinners, Jesus would die for us. Incredible love. And so if Satan can somehow get into our core foundation of identity and say, you're not so bad. Not as bad as that guy. He didn't do that. All of a sudden, what that does is it begins to make us unstable and we realize, well, yeah, you're right. I'm not so bad. And when we think, you know what, we're not so bad, suddenly, don't we, why do we need Jesus? 
If I'm not so bad, why do I need saved? And suddenly, if I'm not so bad, why, why do I need the unmerited grace of God? I deserve something. Do you see how that happens? He begins to cut, cut, cut away. And if he can dismantle our identity, dismantle our view of God. So that's one of the ways in which Satan works. The second way I want us to see this, a little less than a year ago, back in the fall, we went through a series called Labels in the Gospel of Luke. And so we, we talked about this same passage in Luke chapter 4. It's a parallel passage. And one of the things we said then, I'm going to say again this week, is that Satan wants to prevent the eternal blessing of tomorrow by offering a temporary blessing today. He wants to prevent the eternal future real blessing by saying, hey, take the imitation, the counterfeit today. And the prime example of this is when, when Satan takes Jesus up to a high mountain, he looks at all the kingdoms of the earth, he says, look, I'll give you all these. And what he's saying in that is, Jesus, if you will, if you will say yes to this, guess what? You don't have to go to the cross. You can have the world now, you can have the kingdoms now and avoid the pain. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, you don't have authority to do that. He just rolls with it. Isn't that fascinating? But here's the thing. If Jesus had said yes to that then, he would have disqualified himself from the blessing that God had already promised him. You see, Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I said it already, but through him, all things were created. He reigns and rules right now at the, the right hand of the Father. Everything is his. It's already his, and yet what Satan wants us to do is take the imitation thing and therefore not get the real thing. And so, in this sort of culture and world in which we live where it's instant gratification, self-satisfaction, the more I can get now, the happier I'll be, that is a tactic of the enemy to say, take what you want now. What it's doing is it's robbing, of us, robbing us of blessings later. And we need to be aware of that, church. We need to see how Satan wants to just trick us and trap us and prevent us from the good blessings of God and give us the cheap imitation crap that he wants us to believe. All right, so that's point two. Number, number three, how does Satan attack us? Well, here's what Satan does. Satan twists the Bible to get us to believe a false truth. Fascinating. Satan knows the Bible better than you know it, better than I know it. He's got the whole thing memorized. But the danger of Satan is he'll little twists and turns and misapplications. So Satan, he quotes scripture. He says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, Don't know why I'm talking so fast. If you are the Son of God, quoting scripture, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, quoting scripture, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's like, oh, the Bible says that. Okay, that sounds pretty good. It's Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. But here's the thing. He's misusing it. Psalm 91 isn't saying, hey, here's the promise of God. Test it out. Jump. No, it, Psalm 91 was written to encourage believers in unavoidable, uncontrollable circumstances and, and difficulties. Not to say, hey, test God on this. Right? The only thing God says to test him on is, is financial, which is fascinating and probably another sermon for another time. He says, look, no, 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 you're misapplying it. Do not put the Lord your God to 
the test. And so what Satan is going to do, because he knows Scripture so well, is he's going to give us these little nuggets, these little bits, and he's going to present them to us. And what we need to be able to do is to discern, is it applied correctly? And as I'm talking to you, you should be doing the same thing to me. Right? Is it applied correctly? Is it teaching faithfully what the Word of God says? Because the Word of God matters. So three things right? that, that Satan does. He attacks our identity. He wants us to believe in, in a temporary promise to rob us of the eternal promise. And he wants to twist and misuse Scripture to get us to reject who the faithful and true God is. So that's the how. And again, there's always more. And so the last sort of question I want to ask us is, well, what do we do then in response? What do we do to counteract this enemy who, by the way, just to be clear, a lot of the times we think of Satan as a little dude in a red suit or whatever. No, Satan is real. He's active today. He is, he is prowling the earth like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, I mean... We've got to prepare ourselves for battle. We're not battling against flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces of the world. And so, what do we do? How do we do this? Well, if Satan's going to attack our identity, we need to make sure we know what our identity really is. Where is our identity rooted? Do we understand at our very core that we are sinners in need of a Savior? Do we understand at our very core that we've received the unmerited, undeserved grace of God? And if Satan tries to attack you with, no, you need to be defined by this thing or this person or this achievement, we say, no, 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 none of that. I am defined by who God says I am. I've been made a child of God through Jesus' sacrificial payment for my sins on the cross. We've got to know our identity. The second thing is we need to know the true promises of God. Does, do we really know what God says about you? Do you know how much God cares for you? How he has set out good works for you? How he calls you son and daughter? How you are now a co-heir with Christ? Do you know that? Because Satan's going to give you all sorts of other little fake truths, half-truths to get you to doubt who God says you are. And the only way we know who God says we are is if we open the scriptures and read them and ask, Lord, please help me understand because I do not understand. Help me see because I do not see. Change me because I need changed. If he's going to give us false little twists, we've got to know, we've got to know the truth. We've got to know the truth. So this week again, I was just thinking, well, how does this play out practically? You know, there's all the, I've given 14 different points this morning, right? It's sort of lots like, okay, checklist. The goal is not to give you a checklist or a to-do list. The goal is to worship Jesus. And I think as we worship Jesus, these things are going to naturally fall in place. So once again, as we sort of begin to wrap this up and as we ask this question, well, what then do I do? What do I do to counteract the schemes of the enemy? I want to once again direct us to Hebrews. This time, chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. What do I do? It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded, and I said before, whenever you see a therefore, what does that mean, right? We've just been talking about this, these great heroes of the faith, right? Since we have all of these heroes of the faith, therefore, since we are surrounded by, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, like they did, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus is so good. I want to just give you a practical example of how this plays out, church. Uh, this process for this building, um, I, I experienced a little bit of stress along the way, had a couple moments. And, um, you know, w- what happened over time is that I would, I would be at home, be in the kitchen or whatever, and, and I would go down in the basement and I'd come back up and, and I would bring, bring back up this, this it's called a uh, fudge round. <laughs> Anybody ever had one of these bad boys? Greatest treat ever created, especially frozen. That's why I go down the basement. I had them in the freezer, right? And I was just chomp down a fudge round. Maybe I'd get a little ice cream or something. And Maddie, I wouldn't say anything. I'm just eating. Maddie would be like, "What are you stressed about?" <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Issue, <laughs> right? Candy in itself, it's not bad. Question is, what are you using candy? What am I using candy for? See what was happening is to somehow, it doesn't make sense, but it's what I was doing. I was stressed out. I'll just eat this delicious thing, and somehow that makes me feel better. I was, I was going to another thing other than God to find peace in my soul. That's the issue, whatever it may be. So many things, fine. If you want to eat a fudge round just because you like fudge rounds, great. But if you're eating a fudge round to somehow satisfy your soul, issue. And that's what I was doing. And so the question is, well, how does fixing our gaze, focusing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, help me not be a slave to fudge rounds? So I was thinking about this. Remember back in, in verse 1, it said, The Spirit of God took him to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I don't know if you've ever seen the wilderness of Israel, but I've got a picture up here for you. A little arid, dry, hot. And then it, it says in the text that Jesus fasted for 40 days. I have a hard time with four hours. I'm serious. 40 days. I don't know if you know what happens when you begin fasting for 40 days. First, your body starts metabolizing the fat stores. Once the fat stores are gone, then your body begins metabolizing any muscle you have remaining. Eventually, your organs begin to shut down if you go long enough. Jesus had to be this close to death. Wasting away in whatever that picture you just saw. I mean, absolutely brutal. And then, to add to that, who comes strolling in? The devil himself. Not some minion, demon. No. The devil comes to him in his moment of pain, of agony, of starvation, and Jesus remains faithful. And so now, I'm like, you know, I could really use this fudge round. Are you serious? Look what he did. Look what he endured. Look what he went through. Look at his faithfulness in all of those moments. And he won. And so now all of a sudden when I'm tempted here, when I'm tempted anywhere else, this is just one example of many 
when I fix my eyes on Jesus and I, I see what he endured for me, what he walked through for me, and then ultimately when I look to the cross and I look at how sin is so serious and so deadly that God himself had to die to save us from it, suddenly something stirs within me by the Spirit of God to not want to trifle with the very things that Jesus died to save me from. So when we fix our eyes on Jesus, Holy Spirit does miraculous things to free us and give us victory over the very things that want to enslave us and imprison us. Because he is good. And now when we experience temptation, we can, can direct our thoughts to the empty tomb. Which hopefully we celebrate every week, but next week we're really going to celebrate. That I don't have to walk in death. I don't have to walk in defeat. Because Jesus defeated death when he walked out of the grave. And we, church, have a faithful high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who secured us a victory over sin, over death. And that should lead us to worship. Worship of who Jesus is. Worship of what Jesus has done for us. Stunning. So this morning, I want to challenge us. What is it that the enemy is using to distract us, to tempt us, to get us to take our eyes off of Jesus and on to something else? I want you to think of what that thing is, and I want you to bring it to Jesus. Say, take it from me. Help me see your victory and give me victory over this thing because I don't want to live like a slave anymore. I don't want to live in prison anymore. I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to live, Jesus, in the new life that you've given me. Jesus, give me that new life. So as I pray, I want you to pray whatever you need to pray to Jesus.